In relation to birth eight on page one, two, three, four. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to see you all. I still feel like Mr. Tumnus stood next to this. Let me, let me pray as we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for how your word gives life. We thank you for how we've seen that this morning in uh, Sophie's life. Thank you so much for how you've brought her to know you through Jesus. Thank you for her powerful testimony. Lord, we pray that you continue to use this church to, to lead many people to Christ. And Father, we pray for us now as we listen to your word. Help us to pay attention. Help us not to get sleepy, um, but to hear what you have to say and to, um, and to apply it to our lives. Help us to believe your word, we pray. We pray your spirit will be speaking through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to part of an exchange between a news presenter and an evangelical pastor, Guy Mason, in a live interview on Australian TV in October. The interviewer begins, Saying homosexuality is a sin is not love. It's not inclusion. Why do you have this hard line and, and not so loving view? We're not homophobic. You're not homophobic. You say homosexuality is a sin. Look, Jesus championed diversity and inclusivity. Shouldn't you be more inclusive? We are. No, you're not. You're saying if you're gay, you're going to go to hell. That's not really being loving and inclusive. To say that the, the pastor was given a tough time on air is, is a bit of an understatement. Yet despite being antagonized and misquoted, the pastor remained gracious throughout. You see, he never said the words, if you're gay, you're going to go to hell. He went on to share how everyone needs Jesus to be saved. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight, you need Jesus. And he shared how he has members in his church who are same-sex attracted. Now, why do I share that with you? That interview uh, came off the back of the resignation of Andrew Thorburn as CEO of the Australian Rules Football Club, uh, Essendon Bombers, a mere 30 hours after his appointment. So members of the club discovered that Andrew Thorburn was a member of an evangelical church, uh, the one pastored by Guy Mason, 
who believes what the Bible teaches on sexuality. And Thorburn was effectively forced to resign simply because he belonged to this church. Brothers and sisters, just as Andrew Thorburn faced adversity for being a part of a Bible-believing church, it is possible or even likely that you will too. In the West, as many of us know, being a Christian who holds to the teaching of the Bible is becoming harder. It's becoming more inexpedient. The church historian Carl Truman says that people no longer think we're foolish or naive for believing the Bible. Today, they think we're evil for believing it. And he says that that presents a far tougher challenge. He says, and I quote, Being mocked for believing in miracles is much easier to handle than being hated as a bigot. Being mocked for believing in miracles is much easier to handle than being hated as a bigot. He goes on to say, It is now obvious that the Christian position on the key issues of membership in society today, those of sexual identity, gender, and abortion, will merit the title of bigot. I wonder, are, are you ready to be called a bigot? Are you ready for the heat on us Christians to be cranked up? I shared an example of what happened in Australia because it was recent and quite high profile. But as you know, um, Christians are also being harassed here in the UK. And over the coming years, I think we should expect more of it. The, the pressure on us to conform to our culture's views on, on moral issues, that pressure is only going to increase. And the question for us is, how are we going to respond to the rise in temperature? I think you will be tempted to hide the fact that you're a Christian. I, I think you will be tempted to conceal what you believe. And you might even be tempted to stop being a Christian altogether. You see, the more our beliefs run counter to the values of our culture, the more we will stick out like sore thumbs, and the more uncomfortable we'll start to feel. And when we feel like a fish out of water in our culture, it will be so tempting to compromise so that we can just fit in and be accepted by the world. Folks, the world will love you if you stop believing the Bible. It will love you if you stop being a Christian. It's little wonder that a growing number of people are publicly deconstructing their faith, that is, announcing that they've abandoned their Christian beliefs. I think that they enjoy the the attention and admiration that they receive from the world when they do that. If they didn't, why, why wouldn't they just deconstruct privately? Why do they want everyone to know about their deconversion? Folks, we are going to face pressure to compromise, to conform, to even quit the faith. Yet, this pressure that we will face as Christians 
It isn't something unique to, to us today. It's something Christians have faced since the dawn of the church in the first century. It's something that Christians faced in Smyrna. In fact, the pressure that they faced was far more extreme than, the, than that which we're facing and are likely to face in the near future. Listen to what um, the Apostle John says to the church at the beginning of verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. What's the outlook for Christians in Smyrna? They are facing imprisonment and death. Thankfully, things haven't reached that stage here in the UK, and uh, we hope that they won't, but they certainly have in the past. If you think of um, the Reformation, for example. Now, because the situation in Smyrna is so extreme, we might be tempted to think that this letter isn't really relevant to us today. But I think this letter is extremely relevant. It will show us how to, how to deal with, it, with the pressure of living in an environment that is hostile to our faith and beliefs. How do, we, how do we not crumble under the pressure we're going to face, or in some cases are already facing? Our question this morning is, how do we not give in to fear when we're harassed for our faith? I think there are three encouragements in this letter to the Smyrna church that will help us not to be overwhelmed by fear. The first encouragement is this. Your wealth is spiritual. Don't cave to fear of suffering for your faith because your wealth is spiritual. Have a look at me at verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I want you to picture first century Smyrna. It's an influential Roman port city uh, that bustles with all kinds of trade. And it's known as one of the, the most beautiful cities in Asian, Asia Minor, uh, modern day Turkey. The city has a library, a theater, a renowned medical school, gymnasiums, baths, and a stadium. And by first century standards, it has really good, uh, a really good water supply as well as transport links to inland markets. So if you're living in the first century... This is not a bad city to live in. But although this is, a, in many ways, a desirable city to inhabit, it's also a tough city to inhabit, especially if you're a Christian. We see in verse 9 that the Christians are experiencing affliction and poverty. Now, how, is, how has this hardship come about? So Smyrna is an idolatrous and emperor-worshipping city. So it has temples dedicated to a pantheon of gods as well as to, to Roman emperors. And one particularly prominent temple is one that is dedicated to the Roman emperor Tiberius. And if you live in Smyrna, every, every year you are required by law to offer sacrifices and, 
and incense to the emperor. It's a way of of your showing uh, your devotion and your loyalty to him as your Lord. So here's the thing. If you live in Smyrna and you don't offer sacrifices, you're breaking the law. Also, no one will do business with you. Unless you take part in the emperor worship, you are not going to be financially prosperous and you're not going to have any standing in society. This presents a problem to the Christians, doesn't it? Who is a Christian's Lord? It's not Tiberius. It's not Caesar. It's Christ. For a Christian, Christ alone is Lord. So you can see how Christians in Smyrna are facing challenges, difficulty. Now, we might be tempted to think, hey, why don't the Christians in Smyrna, why don't they just offer sacrifices, offer a bit of incense? Is it really that big a deal? If they do, it'll make life so much easier. Maybe maybe they, they can just do it without really meaning it. Now, words to that effect were were said to Polycarp, who was uh, later became uh, the leader of the Smyrna church. And so they said these words to him when he was arrested in A.D. 156. So he was in his 80s at the time, but he was in his 20s when this letter to the Smyrna church was originally written by the Apostle John. So shortly after Polycarp's arrest, a police captain named Herod and his father Nicetes uh, met up with him and said, Why? What harm is there in just saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense and thereby saving yourself? But Polycarp wasn't willing to compromise. So he and other Christians in Smyrna experienced hardship for their faith. Polycarp experienced death because of that, as we'll see later. Now, sadly, part of their hardship came as a result of, of people informing on them. Maybe a little bit um, like how people informed on, on Andrew Thorburn. Look at me halfway through this line. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Did you notice who was informing on the Christians? The Jews. Now, it's worth pausing here for a moment to stress that these words here, they are not anti-Semitic. So these words, you read them, they're quite, they seem quite shocking, a synagogue of Satan. So we need to bear in mind that John who wrote this letter, he was a Jew. And Jesus, the one who gave him this vision, he also was a Jew. So what's happening here? Jesus is strongly denouncing the Smyrna Jews because they are tipping the authorities about the Christians. Now, here's why that was particularly distasteful. So Judaism as a religion, it was permissible in first century uh, Rome. And um, this meant that Jews enjoyed certain freedoms 
which members of other religions simply didn't. Crucially, they were exempted from having to to worship Caesar as a god. They were permitted to merely revere him as a ruler. Now, initially, uh, Christianity was, was viewed as a branch of Judaism, and therefore it, it shared some of those same benefits and protections that the Jews had. But once Christianity came to be understood or viewed as a religion in its own right, Christi- Christians lost the privileges they once had, and it became open season on them. In Smyrna, it looks like the Jews are dobbing in the Christians for not worshipping Caesar, even though that is something that they themselves don't have to do. Do you see why Jesus condemns the Smyrna Jews? They're bringing about the harm of Christians. In other words, they're doing Satan's work. That's why I think they're called the synagogue of Satan. So the Christians in Smyrna are afflicted and they're poor. And in part, it's due to how the Jews have behaved towards them. Now look, I know as I speak of Jews persecuting Christians, we can also think of, yeah, what the church has done um, centuries later. And, you know, we can think of horrific persecution that the church um, in the first century, later on, many centuries later, later, um, carried out. But in the first century, the church was not the one doing the persecuting, it was the one receiving it. So the Smyrna Christians are suffering materially. They are persecuted and ostracized by the wider community. What do they need to remember? They need to remember that spiritually speaking, they are rich. Imagine how discouraging it must be for them to look at the people in their city, both Jews and pagan Gentiles, who are prospering financially and socially, what might be going through their heads? Maybe they're occasionally tempted to to question whether being a Christian, with all the suffering that it involves, is really worth it. See, this is why they need to remember that though they might be materially poor, they are not spiritually poor. In this world, you might be materially materially poor. But if you're a Christian, regardless of how much or how little you have in the bank, you are a spiritual billionaire. Now, you might not feel that way, but that is your spiritual reality. And no one can take your spiritual riches away. In this world, sadly, you can, you can lose your job. You can lose your home. You can lose your sip. You can lose your savings. But in heaven, you cannot lose your wealth. It's safe. It's secure forever. 
You see, your, your spiritual finances are not impacted one iota by the cost of living crisis. Inflation and energy bills cannot dent your spiritual wealth. And while, while your, your bank here on earth might serve you for, for up to 80 or 90 years, your heavenly bank account, which is bottomless, that is going to serve you into eternity. So folks, if you're, if you're tempted to compromise your faith, for example, at work, because you fear losing your job, remember that your earthly job can only provide you so much. You've got a greater bank account than the one your employer pays into, and it's in heaven. So you don't need to cave as a Christian if you face pressure at work. How do we not give in to fear when we're harassed for our faith? We need to remember that our wealth is spiritual. Here's another reason not to cave to fear. Your suffering is temporary. Look at me at verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Friend Sophie earlier mentioned that this life is temporary. Friends, your suffering on earth will only ever be temporary. When Jesus says that the church will suffer for 10 days, I don't think he means a literal 10 days. I think he means that persecution from a time perspective will be limited. Even if the persecution is so intense that it leads to death, if you're a Christian, Death will bring about the end of your suffering. So if you're being hounded because of your faith, remember that your suffering will only be temporary. No doubt, going through it, suffering will still be hard, but you can be confident that your persevering through it means that you will not suffer forever. Your suffering for your faith will will lead to eternal life. Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. There's the reward for persevering in faith when people turn against you because of it. You'll be given eternal life. Friends, We might suffer in this world for our faith, but we will not suffer eternally. Our suffering will only ever be temporary. But the same cannot be said of those who are not trusting in Jesus. Those who will receive eternal life are only those who persevere in faith. Jesus says that, not me. Jesus says that. 
So, so if you're here this morning and you don't have faith in Jesus, I'm really glad that you are here. I'm glad because I, I want you to seriously heed the warning in this passage. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you will not have eternal life. Look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 11. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Who is the one who is victorious? It's the person who has faith that endures until the end. That is, until either they die or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. Wonderfully, that person will not be hurt. I love how he adds it, at all, by the second death. Now, the flip side, of course, is if you don't have faith in Jesus, you will be hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? So the second death gets picked up later on in Revelation in chapters 20 and 21, and it's referred to as the lake of fire. In other words, the second death is hell, where the suffering isn't temporary, Permanent, everlasting. Now, I know that our culture loves, it loves to ridicule the idea of hell. And I think it has to. It's such a serious topic that you either, you either laugh at it or you despair at it. Those are the two ways to respond to it, really. And our, our culture's way of dealing with it is to Let's just laugh about it. It's not real. It's how our culture avoids seriously contemplating it. But hell isn't a laughing matter. Jesus frequently warns us about it. Hell is where you go to suffer for all your sin, for all your wrongdoing against God and against other people. Your suffering there will be a result of your communicating to God, God, I'm okay, thanks. I don't need you. I prefer to do life my way rather than your way. If you're a Christian, you can expect to experience suffering now. But you can be confident that you will not experience suffering later. However, if you're if you're not a Christian, although you, you might not suffer now, you will certainly suffer later. But it doesn't have to be that way. You see, Jesus deliberately died on a cross in order to offer you salvation from hell. So you might have eternal life instead. Friend, will you consider putting your trust in him to receive that salvation. That is how you can be saved from eternal suffering. You see, for those of us who are Christians, we're not Christians because we think we're better than anyone else. We're Christians because we know that we deserve to go to hell. It's what we deserve for our sin. We know that. It's why we follow Jesus. Jesus is the one who can deal with our problem, with our issue. Christian, how can you not give in to fear when you're reviled for your faith? Remember that your wealth, you have wealth that is spiritual. 
that no person or government or earthly institution can ever take away from me. And remember that unlike an apostate or unbeliever, your suffering will only ever be temporary. And here's a final thing to remember. Your Lord is eternal. Look with me at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. This letter to the Smyrna church, um, it repeatedly contrasts life and death. So we saw it in verses 10 and 11. But now we see how Jesus himself experienced death and came back to life. What is this doing here? I think it's reassuring us that the one in whom we are trusting, he himself died and rose again. What happened to him will also happen to us. We, like him, we might suffer even to the point of death, but we will rise again. But I don't don't think this verse is only doing that. I think this verse is also showing us that the one in whom we trust is eternal. He lives and reigns forever. Jesus refers to himself as the, the first and the last. Folks, that's a name for God. We know that from Isaiah 44. To Jesus saying, that's me. Jesus is the eternal God. Therefore, he is the right ruler to follow. He is Lord. Not Caesar or anyone else. Now today, we are not told or expected to bow down to Caesar. But we are expected or pressured um, to replace our biblical values with secular ones. The other day, I was listening to a podcast by The Guardian, and one of the hosts was outraged that Harry Kane didn't wear a rainbow armband uh, in the game against Iran. He was livid. Now look, as far as I'm aware, Kane is not a Christian. Um, so I don't think that's why he didn't wear the armband. I think what is more likely is that he didn't wear it because he didn't want to get a yellow card for it um, because that wouldn't necessarily help his coach or the team. But listening to that podcast... <laughs> It reminded me of how our culture expects and puts pressure on us to conform to its worldview, to embrace and champion its values. If we fail to, we are called out and villainized. We are deemed to have deviated from our culture's doctrines, and we're therefore culturally unorthodox. You see, the majority of the UK might no longer consider itself to be Christian. But the majority of the UK is still very religious. It just has a different creed. Polycarp, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, so he was asked, what harm is there in just offering some incense? Come on. We might also be asked, hey, what harm is there in wearing an armband? What what harm is there in coming to to the pride parade with the rest of the team? It's not that big a deal. When when Polycarp was led 
into a crowded and hostile stadium. He was asked by the magistrate in front of everyone, Swear the oath and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The magistrate continued, Swear by the spirit of Caesar. Polycarp answered, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the spirit of Caesar as you request and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. I am a Christian. Now, if you want to learn the doctrine of Christianity, name a day and give me a hearing. Do you see what Polycarp just did there? He basically said, let me know when might be a good time for me to share the gospel with you. So the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, call for them. For the repentance from, from better to worse is a change impossible for us. But it is a noble thing to change from that which is evil to righteousness. Then the proconsul said, I will have you consumed by fire since you despise the wild beasts, unless you change your mind. Polycarp replied, You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly, and after just a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come do what you wish. Polycarp was then burnt alive. He was martyred for his faith. Interestingly, um, at the end of the book that recounts uh, Polycarp's death, it says this. Now the blessed Polycarp was martyred on the second day of the first part of the month, Xanticus, seven days before the calends of March on a great Sabbath, about two o'clock in the afternoon. He was arrested by Herod when Philip of Trellis was high priest during the proconsulship of Statius Quadratus. But while Jesus Christ was reigning as king forever. I think the person who wrote that knew that their Lord is eternal. Any earthly master you choose to bow down to, whether that's Caesar or Status Quadratus or the secular progressive who hosts a podcast for The Guardian, they will all one day pass away. But there is one master who is eternal, who reigns forever. You see, he is the one who is worth being faithful to until the very end. Friends, don't cave to fear. The Spirit is speaking. Are you listening? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we confess that we are so consumed with the things of this world and we, we, we want to preserve our social status. 
Um, we are afraid of losing wealth or jobs. Um, and we are, we are afraid for, we're afraid of, of showing our Jesus colors, if you will. Father, we pray that we would remember that any suffering on earth will only ever be temporary. And help us to remember that, um, yeah, that Jesus is eternal and that the wealth we have, the spiritual wealth we have, is bottomless. Father, we are, we are so tempted to just focus on the material, on the physical things, on the here and now. Help us to have a, a larger view of reality, a more spiritual one, and, a, and with a longer time frame, an eternal time frame. We are so disproportionately afraid of what we can lose in this world. Help us to remember what we have in Christ. Amen. We're now going to sing our final song, Jesus.